Hello, and welcome to the Calvary Chapel Southeast Podcast. Thanks for joining us for our study through the book of 2 Corinthians. This letter was written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth. In it, Paul gets very personal about his own shortcomings, and he comforts the believers in Corinth. But he also teaches us that by embracing our own weakness, we are able to experience God's strength. Grab your Bibles, and let's jump in. If you will stand with me as we read the word together, we're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible, the 1995 edition, if you're wondering if yours reads a little different than mine. But let's read together. It says, Paul writing to, the, to Timothy there, first of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions, and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed as a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I am not lying. As a teacher of the Gentiles in the faith and truth. Therefore, I want men, the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. You may be seated. Now, as I was, Ryan, uh, for those of you that are new here, I'm Kevin Smith. I'm one of the assistant pastors here. And when Ryan asked me if I would teach this Sunday and just praying through, Lord, what would you have me? And I, I have the pleasure um, Many of you know him, Paul, at the front door. Him and I get to meet um, every week and pray together and read the Word together. And we've been reading through Timothy. And so it is part of my devotional time, just reading through that and realizing, Lord, this is something I want to grow more in my life. I, I want this to grow, but not just in my life, in our lives as a body. And so this is why we're here this morning. And, and let me begin with a question What are the primary spiritual disciplines regarding the development of a believer and God's church? What are those primary spiritual um, disciplines? Psalms 1 1 through 2, this is one of my favorite psalms, one of the first psalms that uh, uh, Pastor Doug asked me to memorize. He said, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates, how often? Day and night. And then if we were to jump forward all the way to the New Testament church, the beginnings of the church there in Acts 2.42, they were continually devoting themselves to what? To the apostles' teaching. That's the scripture, the word, the word come alive. And to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to what? Prayer, these are the elemental things of the Christian walk. To put it simply, to grow as an individual follower of Jesus and to corporately now as a body of believers, 
We need, God commands us to read, to study his word, to meditate upon it, to memorize it, to hide it in our hearts. He says so that we wouldn't sin against him, to memorize the word of God, these things, to absorb it into our lives. And we are to fellowship, that is to gather together for the purpose of encouraging and being encouraged to grow in our relationship with our Lord and Savior and with others. We are to regularly remember the source of our salvation through communion. We did this last week. And last but not least of all, we are to pray. Again, the elementary disciplines of a thriving walk of faith with Jesus. Now, you don't have to raise your hand, but if you think about it, if you're like me, perhaps, how many of you want to and, and know that God wants to grow in you a deeper understanding and practice of prayer? Because these are supposed to be the, the fabric of our lives, the intimacy of the faith. Because these and many other things are on Paul's mind as he writes this letter to young Timothy, a, a very young pastor to the church there in Ephesus, which is now modern day or in Lystra, that he met there, uh, there in Lystra, as he was on his second mission, missionary journey. And Timothy is now pastoring this church in Ephesus. And the purpose of this letter really was to encourage and strengthen. Timothy, as that young pastor who was dealing with false teachers in the church, dealing with the daily pressures of being a young pastor leading a congregation in a, in a pagan city, in a culture that was really opposed to the message of the gospel. Does this sound at all familiar? And this is what he said. He's trying to tell him, listen, pass these things on to the church. I want to encourage the church that this is what corporate worship, corporate dedication to the Lord ought to look like. So he writes this letter, giving these instructions. And again, seeing that we're going to gather starting Monday for prayer, I just, I thought it was a very appropriate, as I was reading through this, like, oh, yes, this is perfect. We, we can hear God speak to us about what he would desire for us and then go and put it into practice. So as Paul considers all that he might pass along to Timothy and the congregation there at Ephesus for their growth, he opens in verse 1 with these words, first of all. Paul wants Timothy and us now, his readers, all these generations later, to know the thing of first importance. When the Lord's people gather, and that is to pray, that we ought to be preparing our hearts. Now, to that end, if you're not aware of it, and I would certainly invite you to be a part of that, every Sunday morning at 8.15, we gather in the living room with whoever is here to pray. Why? So that our hearts and minds would be prepared for what God wants for us, not just as individuals, but corporately. 
as a gathering of believers. If when we gather, our first response in worship is to communicate with God and to hear from Him, then we are more likely to know our frailties, our faults, uh, what are our appropriate needs, as well as a right perspective for others. Because we don't come here on a Sunday morning for just ourselves. I pray at least that's the case. I mean, sometimes, listen, I think if we're all honest, we do come here like, Lord, I just need to be with you, right? Out of desperation. That's not wrong. But we also come to impart things to others. But here's the question. When we pray, when we approach the Lord in prayer, do we speak to him as we might with our buddies or our BFFs? Is it just this casual acquaintance? Do we pray to him like perhaps he is our personal assistant? Maybe he's, you know, Siri or Google Assistant, right? That we just dial him up and say, this is what I need. Can you help me out? Listen, I know, again, that you're likely just like me, that you find yourselves in seasons where it's just, God, I need, I want, I need, I want. But there is so much more to the depth and breadth of prayer. We need to have a right perspective. Now, if you can imagine, maybe you want to close your eyes for a minute and imagine what the conversation between Moses and God was like on Mount Sinai as it was described in Exodus 19, if you're familiar with that passage at all. Just picture it for a moment. They've approached the mountain. These millions of people are gathered there at the base of the mountain. He, Moses goes up on the mountain and God says, I want you to go back down and tell the people, don't come near the mountain, right up to the base, but don't touch the mountain itself or any animal lest they should die. And then Moses goes back up to meet him. And God descends upon the mountain with an impenetrable cloud. Just wrap your mind around this for a moment. With lightning and thunder and the sound of a blasting trumpet. That's what's described there. And then fire and smoke ascend up into the heavens as if from a scorching furnace. And then the earth shakes violently. And this is what it says in Exodus 19.19. When the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered with thunder. Now, that ought to orient our minds and hearts how we ought to approach God. Do you think Moses was like, yo, hey God, so great to see you. I, I, I imagine that he did similarly as Isaiah did when he wrote in chapter 6, verse 5, and Isaiah says, woe is me for I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now, don't get me wrong. There is a time where we can approach God with that intimate tender, tenderness, right? 
but always with this attitude of humility. This is how we ought to approach him each time. With, with, with a trembling awe, with reverent humility, and, and really our hearts overwhelmed as we think about his blood-soaked love. How else could I rightly worship him in song, in the reading of this word and fellowship, unless I know and understand and have a sense of who he is, the Lord of hosts, the God of all creation. I believe this is why Paul then says in verse one also, he says, I urge, or other translations say, I exhort. He's telling us like, this is really important. He says, first, this is the first importance, but I can't tell you how important, so I wanna urge you, exhort you that we would approach God knowing who he is, that our hearts would be captured by him, that my heart would be captured by the king of glory. And I, and I think Paul, when he writes this, I, I think he's also trying to help them think and re be remembered or be remembering uh, of what he wrote two or three years earlier to the church there in Ephesus. Chapter 6, verse 18 is about spiritual warfare. He says, with all prayer and petition at all times in the spirit, and with this in view, be on the alert with perseverance, all perseverance, and petition for all the saints, and pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I'm an ambassador in change that in proclaiming it, I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. As we think about prayer, we need to remember that this is a war that we are entering into, that we've gathered here today for the purpose of being prepared for a war, a battle for our hearts and minds, but also the hearts and minds of others. We're not here to, to merely join together, maybe read something that warms our hearts a little bit, sing a few nice songs, or enjoy the, the company of each other. No, we are here to prepare for a real spiritual battle, a war that is waged in the visible and the invisible realms and a war that cannot be waged or won with, with our mere human intellect, our cleverness, effort, or methods. Ephesians 6.12, for we're not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Prayer is a spiritual weapon. It's a spiritual guard in our life. One that is powerful when it's first blessed by an intimate communion with the Lord. Prayer is a reminder that God knows the answers, possesses all the resources, overcomes all things by his power, and is the giver of every good and perfect gift. Amen? And here's the thing. Prayer is not us reminding God of his responsibilities. 
Let me say that again. Prayer is not us reminding God of his responsibilities. It is for us to be reminded that he is responsible. That he is responsible to take care of everything. With this in view, I hopefully we maybe have adjusted some of our perspective this morning on how we ought to approach the Lord. And now as we do that, let's turn our attention to the content of our prayers. There's going to be a few points up there, so if you're a note taker, we'll you know, jot these down. Number one, what are we praying for? Look again now at verse one. He says, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men. We're, we're given four words here describing this reverent, humble, awestruck heart of prayer now. That this would be the, now what motivates the content of our prayers. Entreaties, this is a supplications. That's one of the other translations says, a humble plea or, or even a begging for help toward one who has the means, power, and authority to grant. And that is our God, is he not? He has, he has all those things the means, the power, and authority to grant every prayer according to his will. And again, this, this ought to capture the idea of our desperate need to seek help from God. It acknowledges our weaknesses and our confidence at the same time in his faithful strength. Scripture says that we can boldly approach the throne of grace. Why? Because we are such perfect, wonderful people? No, because he's faithful to the character that he has displayed. And this is likely the most common and overemphasized type of praying in various times, even in my life, for certain. And, and in this, we, again, we can easily lead ourselves and others to believe God is nothing more than that, you know, Siri or Google Assistant, or if you're thinking back, Jeeves. That, yeah, some of you got that one <laughs> way back in the inter when the internet was first created. But no, I mean, we can get stuck in this place, can't we? That I need, I want, just give me. He, he, he's at our beck and call somehow. And for certain, he is always available, yes? For certain, it is his desire to answer our prayers and to meet every need, Yes? but not everything we want, because not everything we want is good for us. Even good things. But it remembers who we are and who he is. Psalm 86, one through two. Hear me, Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Guard my life, for I'm faithful to you. Save your servant who trusts in you. Do you see the tone of that? We are his servants, not his master. Again, we can come to him for all things. But it's not just about asking for things or for help. B, the letter B now, prayers. This is general communication that encompassing all aspects of our lives. Every part and every season and every relationship should be touched by prayer. 
This would include our daily ongoing need to worship and adore him, to confess sins to him and be cleansed. Paul describes it in Ephesians 6 as praying with alertness and perseverance in the spirit at all times. It's this idea that is being prepared before the day starts to be sensitive to the leading of the Spirit all day long, lest we miss His divine appointments in our lives and in the lives of others. That attitude, I need you every day. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. This is one of my favorite verses um, in the Bible. It says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. We were at Hannah and Liam's wedding last night. It was glorious. Whenever I sign the guest book or if they have a photograph or whatever, I try to find a place maybe in the middle of a picture and I write these words. In all things, dot, 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 praise him. In all things. Because it's not always going to be sunshine and puppy dogs, is it? This is God's will for us to be dependent upon and thankful for his presence in our lives so we will know how to pray for ourselves and for others. C, petitions, intercessions, to, to intercede or appeal on behalf of another to a ruling authority. In this case, our King, the Lord Jesus, our Heavenly Father. Philippians 4, 6, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to who? To God. How often do we petition or intercede for others? Is this a consistent aspect of our prayer life? Now, as I was reading through this, it reminded me, and I was, uh, some of you guys know I, in my office I have a, a shelf that has probably about 20 or 30 Bibles on it, old Bibles, some of them dating back to the, the late 1700s. But one of those Bibles is my grandmother Smith's Bible, my dad's mom. She was an example of the type, this type of praying. To the point, even when her heart was too weak and she could no longer attend church or, or even leave the house, she was diligent to go before the Lord either by her bed or lying on her bed and praying through a list she kept in her Bible. Now, as each of her children were born, and I have that Bible, their names are there. And that was the beginning of her prayer list. Her pastors, the leaders, whoever was in charge in the government at that time, the president, as grandchildren their names were added to the list. Great-grandchildren, great-great-grandchildren. As she developed more relationships, as she was 
um, forced to go to a different church and, and a new pastor, their names were added to the list. Why? Because she understood the command of the Lord. They were to make petitions on the behalf of others. This is where God would have us spend time in prayer. And then he says, thanksgiving, an expression of gratefulness, a a joyful acknowledgement of a gift. Have we received a good gift? Man, the best gift ever, right? No one can match the gift that we have received through salvation, restoration, forgiveness in Jesus Christ. We want to be people of thanksgiving, and it starts there. And then it expands into every area of our life. When thankfulness or gratitude grips our hearts, the griefs, the the anger, the joy, the frustrations, the disappointments of life, they are swallowed up by the readily apparent love and grace of God towards us, his sin-cleansed children. I'm not sure who developed it, but there is an effective tool that I've used over the years that kind of encapsulates these four things. Um, And it's the ACTS model of prayer. ACTS is an acronym or or a, we're getting the word there now. But it's those four words, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. And when, when I have the opportunity to disciple someone, walk with them through life. These are one of the things I want to pass on to them, that our lives, our prayer lives are affected in these four areas. Because if indeed we are approaching him in reverent and humble awe, if we are preparing our hearts and minds for battle, if we are engaging in all forms of prayer, it then begs the question, who are we praying for? Verse 1 and 2, he says, Prayers be made on behalf of all men, for all kings, and all who are in authority. We are praying for ourselves, but also whoever the Spirit of the Lord, Spirit of God reveals to us. And he's, he's very specific. He wants to make sure we don't miss this. It's an important aspect of our lives. We need to pray for those in authority over us. And that's every area of life. Because as the scriptures tell us, it is God who has placed them in authority over us. Even when their decisions bring harm to us and the name of Jesus. In the New Living Translation of Romans 13.1, it reminds us of this. It says, all authority comes from God and those in positions of authority have been placed there by who? By God. God. Despite being God in the flesh, Jesus was betrayed by one of his own, the religious authorities and many of his people, yet he spoke these words to Pilate. John 19, 11, Jesus answered, you would have no authority. And he's, he's telling Pilate this because Pilate says, don't you know that I have the authority to put you to death? And Jesus says, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has greater sin. We're commanded 
to pray for all people everywhere, but especially those who lead us, whether it is our families, in our families, the church, the community, the state, and the nation. God wants us to have a proper perspective of who he's placed in authority and why he has placed them there, especially when our finite little minds can't grasp what he's doing. How often is that? Lately, all the time. (laughs) Then what is the effect of prayer on us? When we're praying in that way, when we're praying for others and those who lead us, what effect does prayer have on us? Verse 2, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. God commands us to pray for everyone, including those in authority, so that they, so that they would know the work of God and we would be reminded that God is working. That they would know the, the work of God in and through us and that we would be reminded that God is actually working when we can't see it, behind the scenes. Because the fact is, he is continually carrying out and revealing his will in this world. And it is meant to serve as a calming effect and influence, especially during difficult times. And so we cry out to him and say, God, What are you doing? We see these leaders. We see other people in our lives. Lord, what? Intervene in their lives. Transform their lives. Do we believe that God can change anyone? Do we? How often do we pray about that? How often do you pray for that person in your family that you're like, I want them to know? This is one of the sweet things that I get to experience every night with with our daughter, Brielle. Every night, there was a friend of mine that I got to know here in this church, and and his life kind of came unraveled. And we've since lost connection with him, but do you know that my daughter prays for that man every night? I didn't ask her to, but she ends her prayer every night praying for him that he would remember that God loves him, and that he is always with him. Persistent prayer. Do we want to see God move? That was weak. (laughs) Do we want to see God move? Let's go beseech the giver of all good things with passionate hearts, believing that he is able and willing to change a person's life. Proverbs 14.30, a tranquil heart is life to the body. A tranquil heart is life to the body, but passion is rottenness to the bone. This is why God says, pray for them that you would have a tranquil life knowing that I am watching over them and you're being reminded that I'm watching over them. Then you won't have this anxiety that it says in Matthew will not change one inch of your life. Tranquility means having peace or calm amid chaos. To live a quiet life implies that we are not to stir up troubles by our own foolish actions. Boy, do I need that, right? It's pretty easy when you get frustrated. We can make a real mess. 
This is emphasized at the end of verse 2 where it says the words godliness and dignity. Our inward peace and calm is reflected in our outward expressions. That our hearts, that our lives would reflect the godly character that he's working and changing in us. And we wouldn't be people stirring up trouble. Which leads us to the next point. Next point, number four. What is the effect of prayer on others? Verse three, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Matthew 5, 16, it says, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify who? Your Father who is in heaven. Now, I will tell you, I, I am convinced of this based upon the early trajectory of my life. It was the persistent praying of my grandmother Smith who prayed for me every day. The consistent example in prayer and demonstration of God's love through my wife that opened my eyes and caused me to seek the truth and abandon the lies that I had bought. And if that's not enough, consider the prayers of Joshua. When he prayed, the sun stood still. Elijah and the rains were withheld, and later he called down fire from heaven. King Hezekiah prayed for Israel to be spared, and God wiped out an army. The church prayed for Peter's release, and they couldn't believe it when he was knocking at the door. And these are just like a tiny little fraction of all that's recorded of the powerful work of prayer. But that effect also is in James 5.16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Here at Calvary Chapel, we do believe the spiritual gifts are still present today. That God can heal people, but we have to have hearts that are right before him, willing to submit to him, willing to say, you are able to do all things, but also to point our hearts to say, oh, I'm a mess. For someone else to say, I'm a mess. For God to use us to intervene in someone else's life. The effect of prayer is the salvation of an individual. It's God's desire, is it not? John 3.16, right? We know this verse well. He came to save. And the next question, I think, is reasonable question is, why is prayer effective? Verse 5, for there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. At just the right time, God came to intervene in the world. When all prophecy was wrapping up as he came and then fulfilled the remainder of it, it was the perfect timing. Again, to put it simply, when we pray with humility and reverence, when we call to him for all things and all people, our prayers reflect the will and purpose of God, and it is his will 
will to reveal himself through us so that all people will know the greatness of his love. The love that compelled him to come as a child, live as a man, suffer as one of us, and willingly offer his life. No one took it. No one took his life from him. He willingly offered it. I'm going to put three passages up on the screen there. Take a moment to read through them. Just in a little bit of quietness, read them carefully. It is God's command. It is God's command for us to pray for people to be saved. Again, I'm, I'm thoroughly convinced that if it were not for others diligently praying for me, I would not be here today. God, in his sovereignty, used them to participate in his will. He has invited each one of us to participate in this grand plan. It's ridiculous to think about it. As weak and as frail as we are, and he says, I want to use you, Kevin. And many of us might be sitting here saying, man, you don't know who I am. Well, I know he does, and he's known me. He knows what a jackal I've been. He could certainly use you. Paul reveals two more things for us in verse 7 and 8. He says, for this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm, I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. As a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth, therefore I want men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Like Paul, our prayers are not only not the only method of laying hold of the will and the purposes of God. Prayer is necessary, but prayer ought to provoke us to action. As we are there in those times of prayer, then, then we're able prepared as warriors, as it were, to go out onto the battlefield and fight. Again, not with our own strength, not with our own intellect and cleverness, but by the spirit of the living God dwelling within us. But like Paul, we've been purchased to do what? Preach the gospel. To be prepared in every season, even when we think it's not the season. How many of you, like me, have been guilty of, like, if I'm going on vacation, I'm taking a break from everything? How ridiculous does that sound in light of what we're reading? Do we ever get to take a break from him? Should we? But we do it, don't we? He desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And he wants to use you and I. We've been purchased to preach the gospel. We are to be sources of truth in a world that is often opposed to the truth. And therefore, he says, we are to lift up holy hands. What does that mean? Like, I, I love, this is not my own, this is from someone else. They said, when you're a little child in school and the teacher asks you a question, what are you supposed to do? Raise your hand. Raise your hand if you know the answer. I'm not advocating that everyone has to raise their hand in worship. Certainly not saying that. But when our hearts are moved, what we're saying is, Lord, you are who you are, and I, sadly, am who I am. But also, joyfully, I am who I am because of who you are in me. I'm a child of the living God, an ambassador, a representative. 
of the creator of all things, and there is insane power dwelling within me that he desires to use. Holy means to be dedicated or set apart for God and his purposes. We are to be people set apart for the work and will of God. Paul said in Galatians 2.20, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. I don't get to say, hey, um, I want to do this, that, and the other thing. No, I say, Lord, what do you want to do? I'm your servant. I am the clay. You're the potter. Not even our prayer life is our own. Our prayers should be directed by him and for his will. And this is emphasized in the closing words, without wrath and dissension. Now, listen, in my lifetime, there have been times where I've wanted to pray at what we see in Psalms 86. It's called an imprecatory psalm, wishing harm on another person, right? For God to pour out their wrath, his wrath, his justice, giving them what they deserve. Pause on that last piece. Giving them what they deserve. Now that's a sticky wicket right there. Because what do I deserve? There is none righteous. No, not one. There is none who seek after God. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are lumped in together. If you think you're a mess, welcome to the club. If you think you're weak and powerless, welcome to the club. If you are a child of God, the ridiculous power of God dwells in you. Welcome to his kingdom. Give them what they deserve. And this really just reveals my heart, my, my wrath, my failure to remember his grace towards me, my bitterness. And, and then really what it is, it's, it's a doubt that God could change someone. Do you believe that God could change the president of the United States? How often do we pray with compassion for him? And his wife, and those in the cabinet. As the Lord was completing his work in Paul, he understood the content of his own heart and what he deserved when he wrote these words about himself in 1 Timothy, Timothy 1.15. This is a trustworthy saying, and everyone should accept it. This is the New Living Translation. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And who? And I am the worst of them all. Think about this. After everything that he's been through, all the letters that he's written, and the last one he's going to write, perhaps, 2 Timothy, and he says, I'm the worst. Why? Because in prayer, in communion with God through his word, all those things had penetrated his life. Every corner, every nook and cranny of his life had been penetrated by the fact that God saw him for who he was, a sinner saved by grace, a man who consented to murder, who in the book of Acts stood before the leaders as he was there in Jerusalem for his last time. And he said, listen, I was there when they stoned Stephen. I gave hearty approval to it. In fact, I watched the coats to make sure everything would be safe so it could happen. He, I went to Damascus. 
that I might find others to place in chains and drag them to Jerusalem. This brings us full circle. When we pray with trembling awe and reverent humility, with those hearts that think about the Lord on the cross pouring out his blood in love, then we will know what to pray for. We will adore the Lord. We will confess our sins, making treaties and prayers and petitions and express thanksgiving. We will know what to pray for as he directs our hearts and minds to those around us and those in authority over us and to do so with compassion. We will see the effect of prayer on us as we are conformed and transformed into the reflection of Jesus, our Lord, bringing us in alignment with his heart and his will and his light reflected in us. As that is happening, the effect of prayer on others will be like sight for the blind and hope for the lost, causing us to rejoice with them as we remember prayer is effective because of who he is and what he has done, his extravagant love, his grace displayed through the undeserved work of the cross. So as we close, there could be nothing more fitting than to put this into practice Will you pray with me? Lord, we are a people, as Isaiah said, of unclean lips. We want to be your church, the praying church. Not just Calvary Chapel Southeast, but every church that is called by your name and is presenting your gospel and truth. Let us be the praying church. Not just here on a Sunday morning, but when we leave this place. At all times, in every place, for all people. That you would transform us first. Orient these faulty minds to correct thinking that is far from you. Turn our hearts towards the Lord Jesus. Thanks for listening. If you're ever in the Portland area, we would love to have you visit us for one of our services. For service times, location, or even just to learn more about the ministry of Calvary Southeast, you can visit our website at ccseportland.com. We hope you've been blessed by this week's teaching. Join us next week as we continue in our study together.